Hi there and welcome to Crime Time Inc. My name is Simon McLean. I'm a former murder squad detective here in Glasgow and in the west of Scotland, as well as having worked nationwide undercover and in surveillance operations for many years. Here is my partner in crime, Time Inc., Tom Wood, retired Deputy Chief Constable of Lothian and Borders Police. But a warning, you might struggle with this accent. <laughs> good day, everybody. Good day. My name's Tom, and I spent a long career in policing in the more genteel part of Scotland, the East Coast, near Edinburgh. I spent much of my early and middle years as a detective working on serious crime. Later, as a senior officer, I was involved in running big operations and major public order events. Simon and I are both writers, and we share an interest in true crime and what goes on behind the scenes. There'll be very few people with our insights and detailed knowledge. Tom, the last time we spoke, we were getting close to the serial killer problem that you had with Susan Maxwell and then Caroline Hogg in 82 and 83. What struck me over the last period of thinking about that was it's okay with hindsight. Everything in policing is fantastic with hindsight. And we know that the media love hindsight, the public love hindsight. At the time, what is going on here? Have we got a serial killer? Are these crimes linked? We're looking for other crimes because we know that the the pattern of serial killers and how they operate uh, means that they don't stop until they're caught. At what point did these murders become linked that we knew it was the same perpetrator? It's a good question, Simon, and of course it's a very difficult decision because if you link crimes which are not linked, then you are off down a very dangerous uh, one-way street and you can really foul up both murders. And and that's why senior investigating officers are very, very reluctant to link crimes unless they're absolutely certain that they're committed by the same person. It's particularly risky given the old card index system, because what you're immediately doing is you're doubling up the threat by uh, trying to combine two large card systems. Uh, so it, it's, it's a decision which is, which is not taken lightly, and of course it can lead to terrible mistakes. Probably the best example of where murders were linked where they probably shouldn't have been was the so-called Bible John inquiry where three crimes were linked, mainly by the press, frankly, when two of them were undoubtedly linked, but the third one wasn't. And as it went on, that led to a lot of trouble. So the Susan Maxwell-Caroline Hogg investigation, it was relatively simple because they were so similar. They were identical. Both these young girls had been snatched on a Friday afternoon in and around Scotland Both had been transported down the narrow spine of roads between Scotland and the Midlands of England. Both had been dumped. Both had been sexually abused. Both had been murdered. Both had been dumped in um, what I could describe as laybys, which were familiar to goods vehicle drivers. So there were so many similarities. So in their cases, it was a simple decision, but you're dead right. In many other cases, it's far from simple and the risks of getting it wrong are pretty big. And so people t- people are very careful before they do Just it. a point there about the, the Caroline Hogg, Susan Maxwell, Tom. Was there any forensics to link them? Because we know about the, the location, the geography, the date of the week, the timing and the modus operandi itself. 
But what about forensics? Was there anything to link the two at that stage? No, no. But very, very little in the way of forensics. I mean, one part of that is the time we're talking about. We're talking about 1982 and 1983. And it's very hard to imagine back then, but we were living in an investigative dark age. I mean, there was no CCTV, there was no mobile phone signals, there were no highway cameras, and there was no DNA. Because the bodies of these two young girls, and I don't want to go too deeply into this because it's very, very distressing, but the bodies of these two young girls had been left lying in the open in the heat of what were two very hot summers. The bodies had decomposed to an extent. There was very, very little in the way of forensic evidence. And of course, this itself was a clue because clearly we were dealing with someone here who had a pattern of offending, but who was to some extent forensically aware. Yep. And moving on from there, we touched on it the last time we spoke to Sarah Harper. Now, Susan Maxwell was 82. Caroline Hogg was almost a year to the day later. Sarah Harper was 86. Was it immediately linked to the other two? No, it wasn't. But we were on the lookout because I mean, Hector Clark, who was in the Officer and Overall Command from 1983, he said to us uh, at every briefing we attended with him, this man will come back. He will come back, he used to say. That was his opening address. He will come back. If he's not dead or in prison, he'll be back, and we've got to catch him. That was his, that was his opening thing. Don't, he said, this is not a historic case. Okay, it's maybe three and four years since Susan Maxwell was abducted. This is a live case because this guy is out there and he will come back. And so we were watching very carefully, and of course we'd established Child Watch, a roadblock system, where if any child was reported missing, we'd put on roadblocks on the main arterial routes going north and south. We were doing all that sort of stuff in the Scottish borders on the north of England, and then Sarah Harper was abducted uh, from a place called Morley, which is actually a suburb of Leeds in West Yorkshire. Sarah was 10, she went out to get some shopping early evening, Friday night again, and was snatched off the street, just disappeared. So there were similarities there. She was found in a river, which again is different from Caroline and Susan. Found in a river, some distance away, and of course in Nottinghamshire. And of course it was very difficult to establish where she'd been put in the river. It was suspected that she'd still been alive when she'd been put in a river. So again, this was slightly different. But when we weighed up all the factors, and we calculated all the odds, we reckoned that this was the same man. Because of the mobus operandi, because of the nature of the victim, because it was still on this north-south axis, albeit the abduction was further south, obviously, than Caroline and Susan's. And so after some consideration, and it was some, because Hector Clark was frightened about linking a murder which wasn't linked, but after some consideration we decided to link the death of Sarah Harper with Caroline and Susan. And that opened up a whole new game, as it were, because then the forces in the north of England suddenly realised that this was not just the fact that bodies had been deposited with them. This was the fact that a young girl had been abducted from their doorstep. And West Yorkshire, of course, where Sarah went missing from, a very big force, and it had also been the force that had caught a lot of criticism for failing to link 
murders in the Yorkshire Ripper case a few years before. So there was great sensitivity around about that. And so they were anxious that it be linked. What it also did was it opened up the checkbook because the Her Majesty's Chief Inspector of Constabulary in England and Wales, who took over from Lawrence Byford, Byford had done the original Byford report that suggested officers and overall command and computerization. It was a new HMI in 1987, just after Sarah's abduction, and said, listen, we must computerize all of these linked investigations. Now, that was a big job. Back record conversion is a big job. It's an expensive job. And it's like going through your old clothes drawer. You know, it's, you wonder, are you making any advances to it? But he said this had to be done. And the Home Office came up and provided a big bunch of money to do it. And at that time, the home system was ready to roll and so. All the cases, the three cases, were converted to computer, from cards to computer. Big job, expensive job, long job, and onto the new home system. So there we were. We were all set up with the three murders, six forces, six police forces, all of different sizes and abilities and all at different stages, with Hector Clark sitting in charge of that. And there was also a child abduction centre, which was opened up at Bradford, and that was manned permanently to monitor the investigations, the joint investigation, and to work under the direction of Hector Clark, but also to act as a kind of an ops room so that if there were any more cases, or when there were any more cases, because again, his guy was going to come back, we'd be ready to strike immediately. So uh, there was a lot of consequentials from the Sarah Harper murder. Can you just explain the home system? Because it's an acronym, isn't it? Yes, the home system, which stands for Home Office Large Major Inquiry System, H-O-L-M-E-S. And of course, Sherlock Holmes is obvious for, for people to see. The home system came about as a direct consequence of the Byford Report, which followed the debacle, and that's what it was, of the Yorkshire Ripper investigation. And this is the, we talked about this briefly this was the, the series of 13 murders of young women, some of them sex workers, some of them not, in the north of England, spreading over a whole lot of forces, where Peter Sutcliffe, the culprit for it, was actually interviewed no less than nine times by different aspects of the police forces. But because the admin system was antiquated, the system was inadequate for the job in hand. And that was the breaking point for the old card system and following in that, Lawrence Byford said a whole lot of recommendations, but two things he said was an officer in overall command must be appointed, one, and two, that there must be a computerised system developed and the Home Office set about doing that and they developed homes, which, of course, it still serves us very well and there's now homes too and I think there's been derivations of that. But the basis of it is it's a computerised system which acts to provide checks and balances and if this coincidence occur, like in the Yorkshire Ripper case, then the system itself will send a warning to the officer in charge and say, you refer to a man with a red coat with a, a black eye, see also statement so-and-so, so-and-so. And so it's a discipline to keep investigators right. We tend to talk a lot about the developments in forensic science, and rightly so. We tend to talk about DNA, and rightly so, but the home system is equally as important. Because it allowed you to interrogate the system very easily. You know, you could put Simon McLean in and the derivatives of the spelling, and the system will tell you in two seconds 
how many times that name has appeared over the period of the inquiry. So it's hard to imagine how Sutcliffe could have been interviewed so many times without the red flag being raised at some point. Not only that, he'd been interviewed, but also he'd been caught in possession of a ball-peen hammer, which was known to be the murder weapon in some of the cases, and it was awful. It was awful. But actually, having worked in the old card systems, you could understand how it had happened. And Hector Clark had been involved in that as a young officer, and he used to say, we had good people, but we had poor systems. And we need good people and good systems. And that's the essence of it. Before we talk about Sarah a wee bit more and, and the Sarah Harper case a wee bit more, Tom, the ramifications of that computerisation went right across all police forces across the country. Because I remember Strathclyde having a big debate about how they were going to use the funding, what kind of computers and what they were going to be used for. I seem to remember Strathclyde police opted for a command and control system for their personnel and cars, etc in Pitt Street, but even crime intelligence at that point. You were talking about it being antiquated there. You and I remember, you remember further back than me because you, you joined before me, but our intelligence system in Orkney Street Police Station in Glasgow, one of the busiest in Glasgow at the time, and they were very, very busy at the time, had a collator in Govan, and that was it. He was to cover the whole of G Division, which was three other substations, sub-offices. And he was on his own, Charlie, and he had a big metal filing cabinet. And he had files. He had the card index systems. And that's how all intelligence was gathered. He had to go and speak to cops. We actually had a brown book in the CID room that you were to put entries in. Joe Boggs has just got out of prison and he's moved back to 24 Harlot Street or whatever it was, which nobody hardly ever used, but it was handwritten. And that's my point, really. And if you take a division like G Division, it bordered F Division, F Foxtrot. And those two divisions cover Greater Glasgow's south side. And never the twain shall meet. That boundary was an intelligence boundary. So the criminals probably didn't realise it, but the minute they crossed over Victoria Road, for example, they were crossing into a different world with completely different methods of, of gleaning information. So a housebreaking across one side of Victoria Road might never be linked with a housebreaking across the road by exactly the same MO. So our intelligence system was shocking. Shocking. But I suppose that reflected the fact that's still true today, that most crime is local, the majority of crime is local, and the solutions are local. But that system you're describing, and I work with is exactly the same system as you're describing, just simply could not cope with criminals that went across not just divisional boundaries, but force boundaries and national boundaries as well. And it just was totally inadequate. When I was in the surveillance team, we used to take on, that's terminology for what we used, teams of travelling criminals. We'll talk about this another time because it certainly falls within our remit, but they were just so professional. And they would travel to the continent because they realised that the police couldn't cope with that kind of uh, situation. We can now, in case MD's listening and thinking about taking it up as an occupation. <laughs> there was one other thing that, that, as a side effect from Sarah Harper, which we don't talk about a lot, but had enormous consequences. Down at the Child Abduction Centre, there was a, an assistant chief, a young man called Don Doverston. And Don Doverston came up with the idea 
of a system which had an acronym, and I can't remember what it fully meant, but it spelled out Catchem. DNA was starting to come on in the late 1980s, and Don Doverson decided that what he'd do, he'd press the Home Office and the Scottish Office to have every prisoner in prison who was convicted of a serious sexual or murder or something like that to be DNA swabbed so as to populate the database, the first DNA database. Now, when you think about it, that was a remarkably, first of all, it was a very prescient move, but also, if you think about civil liberties as we know it today, I mean, they would be crying from the heavens today that it was a terrible injustice. Somehow, and I don't know how he did it, but somehow Don Dovison managed to convince the Home Office to do this, and we swabbed thousands and thousands of people who were in prison in England and Wales and Scotland and who had committed sexual offences, sometimes years and years and years before. And of course, subsequently, in another investigation I was involved in, the World's End Murders, that actually came to our assistance and helped us to, to track down the culprit. So again, Sarah Harper is one of these cases which there were, there were a whole lot of consequentials came from it, which didn't just or sometimes didn't affect that case at all, but would have consequences downstream. Yeah, it changed our thinking. Because it happened in England, as you said, and especially West Yorkshire because of the Ripper fiasco, it got the attention of the powers that be, and the checkbook came out, as you said. If it had remained a Scottish problem, you could argue that that might have taken years longer for that to happen. But its time had come. Its time had come for change. We had Bill Sutherland in the East who had come from police forces in the South, and he'd been involved. He'd been the divisional commander at the Guildford Bomb and whatnot. And you in Strathclyde had Andy Sloan. Now, Andrew Sloan was an ex-West Yorkshire detective who had been very deeply involved in the Yorkshire Ripper and was very badly marked by it. And like Hector Clark, his doctrine was that we've been badly let down by our systems. And so he drove the computerization of Strathclyde as his first priority. So Sarah Harper, 1986. And at this point, we know we've got a serial killer, that we've got three murders associated with him. Any other clues at that point as to his identity, anything at all about where he's coming from or what his job is or anything at all? Did you get profiling done, Tom, for him? Yes, we did. In fact, I was I, I attended the FBI Academy in 1987 and I took all the details over there to Quantico to the behavioural sciences people. And to some extent, they told us what we already knew. They said he was a loner. He would live his life in small compartments, probably unmarried, that he would have an obsession with pornography and all of these things which we guessed at and, of course, which subsequently turned out to be true. But there's another issue we should talk about, and that is we started to cast around there to find out what else this individual... And the thing is, we, and Hector Clark used to say it, we know everything about this man except his name and address, he would say. <laughs> and we did. We knew everything about his patterns of behaviour. That's why we were sure he would come back. He was a compulsive offender. We also looked at two other cases. Jeanette Tate, who was a wee girl who went missing down in Devon in Cornwall, again had been snatched. And we knew she had been snatched because... This was in 1979, as I recall. We knew she'd been snatched because she'd been out riding on her bike. The first person to come along after the abduction, the wheels on her bike were still turning. So that's how quickly the abduction had been. It had been a snatch. So there was her, 
Her body was never recovered. There was a very similar crime in Northern Ireland, 1981, Jennifer Cardy. Jennifer Cardy, again, had been out on a bike. She'd been snatched. Her body was found some distance away. And there were similarities, but there were not enough similarities to link them at that time. And I remember Hector Clark talking about it, talking about the pros and cons of that. In Jeanette Tate's case, the body was not recovered. And in Jennifer Cardy's case, we had the Northern Ireland dimension, where naively, and it was naively, we thought that most crimes like that over there, or any crime over there, literally must have some sort of Northern Irish, perhaps sectarian connection. And so we monitored these cases, but we didn't bring them on board. And eventually, Jennifer Cardi's case was brought on board as late as 1990. What triggered that? What tipped that over the edge? The arrest. So between 1981 and 1991, we've got four murders that are linked, eventually linked, from Northern Ireland to Scotland to West Yorkshire and no significant forensic evidence for all the reasons that we spoke about. But by this time, and this is something we haven't spoken about, is, is where the computerised system. By now, everything's on computer. And this is where it comes into its own for me, Tom, is when you're preparing a case and it has to go to court. This is where the system's invaluable because you can pick out the nuances of that case without picking out individuals to make statements, to write statements, until you've interrogated the system properly. Would you agree with that, that it made the case so much better? Yes, it was hugely beneficial, because once you've got a name to put in the frame, you then literally can download, and once you know where he lives and where he's been and what his activities are, you can then interrogate the system and draw down the statements that relate to him. But, you know, a wise old DCI I used to work with, he used to always quote Mrs. Beaton's cookbook. Mrs. Beaton's cookbook was the sort of the, the go-to book for Victorian housewives. It was the good housekeeping book. And if you kept Mrs. Beaton's cookbook, then you could look after a home, everything from domestic cleaning to recipes. And she had a famous recipe for hare soup. And the first line of Mrs. Beaton's recipe for hare soup was, first catch the hare. <laughs> Brilliant. And my old boss, Jimmy Wilson, used to say, yeah, all this is great. We've got all this, but we've got to catch the hare. We had to catch the hare. And in the interim period from 1987 to 1990, Hector Clark tirelessly up and down the country visiting these the six forces that were involved in this investigation, trying to keep them on their toes, trying to keep them focused, trying to keep the money coming in, trying to keep the systems up and ready for the occasion that he knew would come when the culprit came back and offended again. These were hard years. The first flush of excitement leaves you, the adrenaline falls away, and it just becomes a slog and difficult to keep your attention up, difficult to focus. And there's new things happening all around you. There's other inquiries which are much more fruitful potentially to distract you. And you've got to keep your focus over all the years and keep your head down and plod on. Hector Clark did a great job in keeping us focused and keeping us on tune and keeping all the other forces on tune too. And money was a big factor because, you know, as time goes on, there you have Staffordshire, 1982, Susan Maxwell, you know, six, seven years later, they're still running a huge incident room. They've got a lot of other crimes to solve. 
They've got a lot of other routes for the money. How Hector Clark managed to keep that money coming in and keep everybody pulling together well, it was a remarkable feat. At the end of my career, I was an officer in overall command of uh, a murder investigation, including the world's end. And that was a much smaller thing than Hector Clark, much smaller job. And really, when I did that job, only then did I really appreciate what an amazing trick Hector had pulled off. The funding, certainly in Scotland, for major inquiries like that was pulled down from the Home Office directly, was it? Well, what happened was in these major inquiries, you could apply to the Scottish Government, the Scottish Home and Health Department at the time. It wasn't the Scottish Government, Scottish Office. You could apply for an additional grant. And they were very good, actually. They tried to help out. But in the first instance, it had to come from the police budget. And, of course, that often meant substantial overspends. And what we forget is it's only about the 1990s that police forces were fully funded. There's a thing called the grant-aided expenditure, which is a sort of limit to which police forces are financed. And basically that says, here is the limit, and if local authorities put in 50%, the Scottish government will put in 50%. But up until the early 1990s, and certainly in my part of the world, the local authorities were not putting in their full share. And if they didn't put in their full share, then the government only matched funded. So we were underfunded right up until the early 1990s. And in the Lothian's case, it was only really Bill Sutherland, who was an outstanding operator in every regard. It was only when he arrived that he made the argument for the force to be fully funded. And that allowed us to buy the computer equipment that was part of the first rollout of the investigative assistance on the Caroline Hogg case. This is very exclusive information to get on a podcast, Tom, if I can say so, because you're a retired Deputy Chief Constable of Lothian and Borders Police, and most people like myself don't have any insight into these funding issues and the politics, if you like, of securing the funds. Most cops don't realise that somebody somewhere has to, to plan and secure funding for every aspect of the job, uniforms and equipment and all the things that go on day to day. Uh, all they ever see is no overtime and cut down on this and cut down on that and cut down on the next thing. And certainly with what we're doing here, talking about true crime, the most heinous crimes we could imagine, the abduction and murder, sexual abuse and murder of small children, the public would like to think, and we would like to think, that money was never going to get in the way of that. But the very pragmatic view that you can give us, that money is always, resources are always going to be an issue, and it's something the public should be very aware of as well. Yeah, they are. And the other thing is priorities, because um, how do you justify spending huge sums of money on an investigation that's going nowhere and is five years old when you've got an investigation which is red hot and you've got a body that's barely cold in the mortuary, and you've got you know options. And we had a limited number of detectives, as you did in Strathclyde. There's only so many detectives that can handle these big investigations. Some, some people are very good at it, and some are not. You get the sprinters, and you get the long-distance runners. And we had to take a chance on a lot of very young officers and push them into senior positions, and I was one of them. And I benefited from that. Without doubt, when I think about it now, my promotion to detective inspector, chief inspector, I was a detective super by the time I was 36 years old. Part of that was the fact that the CID in our part of the world was under tremendous strain 
from having two big, multiple murder investigations that were running at the same time. So there's all sorts of consequentials that come from it. I'll tell you, interestingly, uh, it's a funny aside, but it shows you what a remarkable job he did. Our old chief, Bill Sutherland, he managed to persuade the police board that were a Labour-controlled police board in the Lothian borders to fund up to the maximum in the year after the miners' strike. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> in the year after the wow. miners' strike. Now, I, yeah, yeah, wow. You know, when feelings were running high and there was a lot of political tension, et cetera, et cetera, and it just shows you he had a tremendous personal power, which you could not ignore regardless of your feelings about policing and the miners and all the rest of it and politics. He just had this authority, this air of authority that allowed him to do that. And the reason that we were so well placed in the 1990s to cope with technically with all of these demands on computers and vehicles and expenses was because of the work he had done in the 1980s. The early 1980s, that would be in with the new Thatcher government coming in. There was so much going on in the country at that time, Tom, as well, all around about this. It's easy for us to focus on these major crimes. But there's so much going on elsewhere in the world as well. And the Falklands War. Something I also wanted to, yes, yeah, just that, that wee thing, yeah. Just to, to finish off here, I wanted to touch on the serious crime squad because we've mentioned it so many times because to you and I it was a bread and butter. Just to, to emphasise that the serious crime squad was a, was a resource for divisional CID. So wherever a murder or serious crime had occurred, that would stretch the detectives and the officers in that division to breaking point. They couldn't cope with the extra inquiries that were required. Then the serious crime squad would offer their services and come in as a supplement to the local CID. And any serious crime squad that I worked in, we were working three or four inquiries, maybe more sometimes at the same time. And then we had a surveillance unit that was creating its own inquiries as we went along. So it was just to clarify, was that similar to the Serious Crime Squad at Edinburgh? Was that the same idea? Yeah, it was. I was promoted in the Serious Crime Squad in 1981, a detective inspector. And from 1981 right the way through, I just worked on murder investigation after murder investigation after murder investigation. So, I mean, I still get a lot of calls. In fact, I appeared as a witness in a murder case in the Aberdeen High Court two months ago, um, dating from 1978. <laughs> and... Uh, I had taken some statements in an Aberdeen case. And of course, the people who had statements I'd taken are all dead. And so I was up in the High Court reading all our statements. But the Police Scotland, the young fellows came to see me and said, I'll kill him, Mr. And I said, but here about a murder. I said, which one? <laughs> and of course, the Serious Crime Squad was a development of the Flying Squad. And the Flying Squad, Flying Squads were really pioneered by Persicillito, who we're going to talk about at some stage. And the major investigation team that Police Scotland have now is a descendant of our serious crime squads. OK, we're going to come to all that in due course. But the next thing we're going to do when we come back is the best bit, I suppose, is the capture of this guy and the case being made thereafter to take him to court and subsequent to that. So look forward to that, Tom. And uh, I'll let you go just now. We'll catch up soon. Thanks very much. Take care. Next time on Crime Time Inc. I saw this coming up, this description, and I phoned Hector Clark straight away. He was the deputy chief constable at that time. I was a chief super. I phoned him up and said, I said, boss, this is your man. This has got to be your man. And he says, Tommy says, this is him. <laughs> 
He says, this is him. This is what we have been waiting for. This is it. The trap was sprung. And Hector later told me, he said, for the first time in eight years, he said he went home and he got an undisturbed night's sleep, uh, knowing that, that this man was in custody. Because from what happened, the place, the time, the modus operandi, the type of guy he was, the fitting out of the van, everything, everything was absolutely right. This was the man. <laughs>